Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A purse that contains clues to a mysterious death. Even though this was supposedly a one-car accident, the paperwork that she had with her has disappeared. A building that holds the secret to a centuries-old disappearance. Hanging over his head was the big question of what's going to become of me. And a lethal weapon used to protect a celebrated president from a deadly plot. Everyone was on edge as how the situation would work itself out. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions, unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics, each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. The small town of Hopkinsville, Kentucky, is home to the Penny Royal Area Museum, an institution which celebrates the colorful heritage of the state's southwestern counties. Here, amid antique toys and bygone memorabilia, lies an artifact linked to a peculiar local incident. It is just a simple brown little folder, but what's inside is totally fascinating. According to local author Geraldine Sutton Stiff, this folder's contents provide vital clues to a bizarre event involving her own family. We have investigation reports, interviews, photographs, and sketches. Sketches that depict otherworldly creatures that are decidedly inhuman. What information does this dossier provide? into the events of the Kelly-Hopkinsville encounter. It's August 21st, 1955. 26-year-old Elmer Sutton is visiting with family members on his mother's farm in Kelly, Kentucky. The group is enjoying the warm summer evening, passing the time with a game of cards, unaware that their lives are about to change forever. At 7 p.m., a visibly shaken friend of Elmer's named Billy Ray Taylor bursts into the farmhouse. He said, there's something out here, and I don't know what it is. He said he looked up, and going across the sky was an oval silver object with all the colors of the rainbow flowing behind it. Billy Ray and Elmer head out to the yard to investigate. But what they see next is a sight unlike anything the two men could possibly imagine. Something come walking out of the woods. It was about three and a half foot tall, big glowing eyes, big ears, and it was hovering above the ground. Frantic, Billy Ray and Elmer flee for the safety of the house. They didn't know what to do but protect the family. So they got ready to start battle. 
Moments later, the invader approaches the farmhouse. Even more terrifying is the fact that this alien figure is not alone. There was three, possibly four. The creatures came up to the windows and to the door. My dad shot up toward one out in the tree. But as the men light up the night with their guns, they come to a frightening realization. When they would hit it, the creatures would just drop and come back. That's when it really got terrifying. With the mysterious invaders still surrounding the house, the group barricades themselves inside, left with only one option, to wait for the assault to end. So they sit in there and got real quiet, and they could hear one of them going across the top of the roof. This was just, just really scary. Then, shortly before 11 p.m., just as quickly as they appeared, the terrifying creatures seemingly vanish. Relieved that the horrifying attack has finally ended, the family summons the police to their property. When the police got there, there were shotgun shells everywhere, rifle shells. So there was clear evidence that they had been fighting with something. But the evidence of what they were fighting is nowhere to be found. They didn't know what to think, so everybody left. In the days following the shootout, the puzzled citizens of Kelly, Kentucky, try to make sense of the Sutton family's extraordinary encounter. The police, the reporters and stuff, they thought maybe it was just a big hoax, that they were just trying to play a joke. The police continue to look for clues, and when they question the townspeople, they find that others shared in this otherworldly sighting. In fact, a farmer just south of the Sutton house, as well as two policemen, report that they saw unusually bright lights in the sky that night. And when a sketch artist renders depictions of the mysterious alien beings, the Sutton family's claims seem frighteningly real. He took two of the guys and one of the girls and asked them to describe what they seen. And they all described the same thing. It's these same sketches, packaged along with police reports and photos, that are now archived at the Penny Royal Area Museum in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. But without tangible evidence, these eyewitness accounts of the bizarre incident are ultimately deemed insufficient to continue the investigation. For decades after, the shootout at the Sutton Farm remains a source of heated debate. Was the whole thing a hoax or a true alien invasion? Over the years, ufologists posit a variety of theories. Some argue that the brilliant lights that Billy Ray Taylor saw in the sky on August 21, 1955, were nothing more than a meteor shower, one of many that occurred in the area at that time while others assert that the creatures themselves weren't aliens at all, but of a more avian nature. Specifically, great horned owls, large birds indigenous to the area. The great horned owl is a big owl. They do have the big eyes. And if its wings are out, it can flow across the ground. But the Sutton family insists that they were the victims of a home invasion by beings that came from out of this world. I do believe they had an alien encounter that night. That was no owl. 
So what are the bizarre creatures that are depicted in the dossier at the Penny Royal Area Museum in Kentucky? It seems the truth is still out there. Washington, D.C. This capital city's rich history and famous landmarks captivate tourists from all over the world. And perhaps no place holds the public's imagination more than Ford's Theater, the site of an infamous tragedy that took the life of our 16th president. The night of April 14, 1865, President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated here by the actor John Wilkes Booth. But as park ranger Roger Powell knows, one particular artifact in the theater's museum tells the incredible tale of how Abraham Lincoln almost didn't become president at all. We have an item in our collection. It has four loops and a flat top. In fact, it is a weapon and a very effective one. They are brass knuckles. So what role did this small piece of metal play in protecting the celebrated leader from a deadly plot? And how did one pioneering woman help foil it? January 1861. Tension between the northern and southern states is reaching fever pitch. As the U.S. prepares for an impending civil war, railroads are marked by southern sympathizers as prime targets for sabotage. And working to prevent such subversive acts is a trailblazing investigator for the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. Her name is Kate Warren. Kate Warren is famous as the first female detective in America. She was one of the top employees because she could ferret out information in places that a male agent would not have been able to do. On February 3rd, Warren's boss, Alan Pinkerton, sends the top female detective on an undercover mission in Baltimore, Maryland. There, she disguises herself as a refined Southern belle, hoping to elicit information about disruptions along the Mid-Atlantic Railroad. But she soon discovers that Southern secessionists are hatching a plot more devious than anything she could have imagined. The plot is an assassination attempt against Abraham Lincoln. In just a few weeks, the president-elect will journey from his home in Illinois to his inauguration in Washington, D.C. Kate Warren learns that a group of assassins is planning to strike when Lincoln transfers trains in Baltimore. Abraham Lincoln would have to disembark the train, ride in an open carriage about a mile, and then get on another train to Washington, D.C., And it was the safety of President Lincoln in that open carriage ride that forced her to take these threats very seriously. With the clock ticking down to the inauguration, Warren and her employer, Alan Pinkerton, arrange a meeting with Lincoln himself and lay out a plan that they hope will save the president-elect's life. The idea is that Lincoln would leave on a special train ahead of schedule, go through Baltimore early, and enter Washington, D.C. unannounced. Lincoln is reluctant to agree to Pinkerton's proposal, insisting that sneaking into the nation's capital is an undignified way for a president to make his entrance into the White House. But Pinkerton pleads his case. He truly fears for the president's safety. And eventually, Lincoln does agree. In addition to an early unannounced departure, 
Pinkerton's strategy contains another crucial element. Lincoln would be in disguise and would be unrecognizable. Two days later, on the evening of February 22, 1861, Abraham Lincoln and his protectors, Alan Pinkerton, Kate Warren, and a bodyguard, stealthily board a specially arranged train in Philadelphia. Kate Warren rented them two sleeping cars. Everything goes according to plan, as the disguised president-elect is able to sneak in unnoticed. Lincoln is said to have worn a cloak so that his features were obscured. With everyone safely on board, Lincoln's entourage ensures that they are properly prepared for any kind of attack. In addition to pistols, each member of the party arms themselves with perhaps their most important weapon of all, brass knuckles, including these, thought to have been Kate Warren's, now on display at the Ford's Theater Museum. But why would so small and simple a weapon be carried to fend off an assassin? The fact is, many firearms of the period had their limitations. Even if you were using a gun, you might only get one or two shots off before you would have to throw the weapon on the ground and engage in hand-to-hand combat. So brass knuckles would be a weapon that would be necessary. Shortly after 3 a.m. on February 23rd, the train approaches Baltimore the very place where it's rumored assassins will strike. Everyone involved must have been tremendously nervous. The most dangerous part of the journey is about to begin. It's 1861. Abraham Lincoln is on a perilous journey to Washington, D.C., where he's to be sworn in as President of the United States. Along the way, he must switch trains in Baltimore, where he's been told there are a group of Southern sympathizers who will try to assassinate him. So how will the future leader and his bodyguards foil this nefarious plot? At 3.30 a.m. on February 23rd, a disguised Lincoln and his security detail, Detective Kate Warren, Alan Pinkerton, and a bodyguard, covertly disembark the train in Baltimore. Everyone was on edge as how the situation would work itself out. The group quickly ushers Lincoln through the station and into a carriage waiting to take him to the next train. And in the eerie silence of the early morning hours, the assassins never appear. And Lincoln is safely escorted to the next train to Washington, D.C. The subterfuge by Alan Pinkerton and Kate Warren was successful. Abraham Lincoln arrives in the nation's capital unharmed. And on March 4, 1861, the man that will save the country from the ravages of the Civil War is sworn in as the 16th President of the United States. And today, these brass knuckles, encased at the Ford's Theater Museum, stand as a testament to Kate Warren, America's first female detective, whose courage and vigilance helped ensure the reign of one of our nation's most celebrated leaders. In the heart of Brooklyn, New York, is a museum that from the outside might be easily confused with a standard subway stop. Visitors descend the stairs, walk through a turnstile, and enter the subterranean world of the New York City Transit Museum. Here, 
vintage buses and photo displays pay tribute to Gotham's complex transportation system and the people who built it. But deep in the museum's collection is an artifact that tells the story of an extraordinary invention years before its time. According to historian Marion Calibro, this volume of architectural drawings and watercolor paintings laid the groundwork for the development of modern transportation. Without that kind of thinking, it's impossible to imagine New York as it is today. So what groundbreaking creation is outlined within these pages? And how did it shape the future of America's largest city? It's the early 1860s. New York is a burgeoning metropolis of nearly a million people. With the population growing steadily, streetcars, carriages, and throngs of pedestrians vie for space along its congested avenues. It is just so busy and crowded, and the streets are a mess. Horses going every which way, carriages, slop underfoot. Not an easy place to navigate. Some city officials want additional streetcars to ease the burden, while others believe elevated trains are the solution. But one man, an inventor named Alfred Beach, thinks that the answer to the city's traffic woes lies underneath New York's bustling thoroughfares. Beach studied the underground metro system in London. His feeling was, hey, if they can do it in Europe, we can do it here. But there's just one problem. London's underground trains are powered by steam, a system which requires ground-level ventilation shafts to be built. And this measure is deemed too difficult and costly for New York City. Then, in 1866, Beach comes across a new invention being used by the London Postal Service. Using fans to create air pressure, it's a device that is able to efficiently move mail from one end of a chute to the other. This innovation is called a pneumatic tube. Suddenly, Alfred Beach believes he's found the solution to relieve New York City's oppressive congestion. Beach wants to make a pneumatic tube that can carry people underground to New York City. He figures if you can do it for mail, you can just enlarge it and do it for people. The entire apparatus would be powered by a 48-ton fan, and the idea was that it would drive the train in both directions. They'd reverse it when it got to the other end, and it would pull the train back. But can a train car filled with people actually be powered by compressed air? Beach decides to put his revolutionary idea to the test. In December 1869, an area is staked out along a main thoroughfare in downtown Manhattan, where a construction crew breaks ground on a 300-foot trial section of the pneumatic subway. And for the next 58 days, workers labor tirelessly, digging a massive tunnel to make way for a 22-passenger rail car. A few months later, in February of 1870, Beach is ready to reveal his creation to the public. The very concept seems implausible, but will it work? Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. 
Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. It's 1870, New York City. Inventor Alfred Beach has come up with an extraordinary plan to solve the transit crisis in America's largest city. A mass transportation system underground, powered not by steam or electricity, but by compressed air. It's a novel idea, but will it work? On February 26th, after nearly two months of excavation, Alfred Beach opens his 300-foot pneumatic subway test line to the public. The doors open and passengers enter a lavish car filled with plush seating and hardwood floors. And as the 48-ton fans powering the apparatus spring into action, the train suddenly inches forward. And New Yorkers are awestruck. Beach's air-powered subway actually works. Oh, the pneumatic train was a big hit. People just love to take that ride. Invigorated by the success of his pilot test, Beach begins making plans to add five miles of track to his pneumatic subway and draws up this ambitious proposal, now archived at the New York City Transit Museum. Beach worked tremendously hard on this, and he tried to work every political angle and get the license approvals that he needed. But the city's landowners have a different agenda. Part of what Alfred Beach was up against was real estate interests. They are afraid of what it will do to the buildings that they've just erected at great cost on Broadway and other streets in Lower Manhattan. Convinced that this underground system could cause irreparable damage to building foundations, City Hall ultimately denies Beach's proposal. The pneumatic subway becomes just a passing fancy. Instead, New York adopts a system of elevated trains, a mode of transportation that proves to be popular but problematic. Elevated trains create a lot of pollution. They darken the city. They are inefficient, but they pretty much become a norm. But in the early 1900s, the advent of the electric rail and advances in construction techniques enable New York to finally build a clean and efficient subway system underground. And on October 27, 1904, eight years after Beach's death, the first official subway makes its maiden voyage, traveling 9.1 miles from City Hall to 145th Street in Harlem in just 20 minutes. Though the line is not pneumatically driven, Beach's assertion that the future of rapid transit is below ground is finally recognized. And at the New York City Transit Museum, this proposal remains archived as a tribute to an imaginative inventor whose ambitious vision helped steer the course of mass transportation as we know it today. Rock stars, wetland wildlife, and fossil fuels. These are just some of the chapters in the bioregion's long and varied history, on display at the Museum of the Gulf Coast in Port Arthur, Texas. Here, among the many relics housed in this 39,000-square-foot building, is one simple, everyday object that, according to curator Ami Kamara, commemorates a very unlikely heroine. 
the artifact that we have is an object made of tan leather that has a little bit of staining on it, a little bit of damage to it. This item is a lady's purse, and it belonged to Karen Silkwood. So who was Karen Silkwood? And how did her handbag end up the key piece of evidence in a 37-year-old murder mystery? 1972, Crescent, Oklahoma. 26-year-old Karen Silkwood takes a job as a lab technician at a nuclear processing plant operated by energy giant Kerr McGee. The plant manufactures fuel rods used in nuclear power reactors. But with the atomic energy industry in its infancy, many of the workers are unaware of the hazards posed by the airborne radiation leaks that frequently occur at the plant. They had no idea how dangerous it was. They weren't told that it could cause cancer. And the plant's management does little to ensure the safety of their employees. The workers were just being told to, oh, wear this respirator and you'll be fine, when actually they really should have been evacuated and decontaminated. So Karen started to catch on to it, and she knew something was not quite right. In 1974, Karen Silkwood is recruited by the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union to investigate the conditions inside Kerr-McGee. She would document how many times the alarms went off, how many times there were leaks, write down things, dates, people, names. As Karen probes deeper, she uncovers something truly disturbing. A nuclear fuel rod has to meet certain criteria. If it's cracked, it should not be shipped. Cracked fuel rods leak radiation, contaminating anyone who comes in contact with them. She started to notice that these rods were actually getting shipped cracked, but the documentation that Kerr-McGee was writing down was that they were okay. So it was right then and there when Karen really decided that something needed to be done, something drastic. Karen decides it's time to blow the whistle on Kerr-McGee and their unsafe practices. So she calls David Burnham, a prominent investigative journalist at the New York Times, and arranges to meet him in Oklahoma City. Karen was going to present them all her paperwork that she had been keeping for months and months, and they were ready to break the story. On the evening of November 13th, 1974, with incriminating evidence in hand, Karen sets off on the 30-mile drive to Oklahoma City for her meeting with the New York Times. She never makes it. Later that evening, state troopers find the mangled wreckage of Karen Silkwood's car in a ditch by the side of Route 74. Karen's lifeless body is slumped behind the wheel. When police find marijuana and strong prescription sedatives inside Karen Silkwood's small leather purse, they conclude that she must have been driving under the influence at the time of the crash. The police said this was a one-car accident and there was nobody else on the road. But Silkwood's friends and family are not convinced. It was just a little too coincidental for them that she would die on her way to meeting the New York Times reporter, and they do not believe it at all. When her family saw the car, they realized that there was a dent in the rear fender that was unexplained for. It had to be a dent made from um, some sort of exterior force. They thought there was foul play involved. So did Karen Silkwood crash her car in the midst of a drug-induced haze? 
Or could something more sinister be going on? It's November 1974. In Oklahoma, union worker Karen Silkwood is found dead behind the wheel of her car just hours before she was to meet with a reporter to blow the whistle on safety violations at the nuclear plant where she worked. Police say she was driving under the influence of drugs and that her crash was just an accident. But skeptics believe that someone deliberately ran her off the road. So what really happened to Karen Silkwood? Though a dent in Silkwood's rear bumper is enough to suspect that she was hit from behind, it is the evidence that is conspicuously missing that raises the most questions about her death. The paperwork that she had with her has disappeared. The missing documents exposing safety breaches at the Kermagee plant that she was planning on handing over to the New York Times reporter add fuel to the theory that her death was not an accident. But if Karen Silkwood was murdered in order to keep her silent, the crime had the opposite effect. Karen's death actually ended up shining a big bright light on Kermagee. And the Atomic Energy Commission came in and started investigating, and they found out that a lot of Karen's claims could be substantiated. Karen becomes a martyr for the growing environmental movement and for workers' rights. And in 1976, after years of mounting scrutiny, Kerr-McGee decides to shutter the doors of its plant in Crescent, Oklahoma. We may never know for sure what really happened to Karen Silkwood on that desolate Oklahoma road on November 13, 1974. But one thing is clear. Her legacy lives on at the Museum of the Gulf Coast. And this purse, just one small piece of evidence, commemorates Karen Silkwood as one of the first and most important industrial whistleblowers in history. Grotesque anatomy the preserved organs of the disfigured and malformed, and a wall of skulls. Welcome to the curious world of the Mütter Museum, one of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania's most unusual destinations. Here, hundreds of stunning medical oddities celebrate the wonders of the human body. But one artifact contains secrets far beyond what the naked eye can see. This is a simple wooden box, and inside the box we have 46 glass slides. At just three inches long, each slide contains a small sample of human tissue. And when curator Anna Doty first laid eyes on this strange item, even she was taken aback. It's really an amazing sight when you know that these are the slides that have the brain tissue of Albert Einstein. What part do these slides play in the intriguing quest to unlock the secrets of one man's unrivaled intellect? April 18, 1955, Princeton, New Jersey. One of the 20th century's most prolific minds, Albert Einstein, is dead at the age of 76. Einstein was very specific in his wishes for how he wanted his body to be treated after he died. He didn't want people flocking to a particular site to venerate him. Einstein's family gathers for an intimate memorial. And in accordance with the famous scientist's wishes, his body is cremated. 
But days later, the family receives a bizarre and upsetting piece of news. Officials at the Princeton Hospital inform them that before Einstein's body was cremated, his brain had been stolen. The Einsteins, still grieving the loss of their beloved patriarch, are deeply distressed. Who took Albert Einstein's brain and why? After mounting an investigation, Princeton Hospital officials zero in on a prime suspect, the man who performed the autopsy on the deceased genius, Dr. Thomas Stoltz Harvey. It is standard practice for medical examiners to reintroduce the dead person's organs into their body once the autopsy is complete. But as investigators discover, in the case of Albert Einstein, this is not what happened. Dr. Harvey, after he finished the autopsy of Albert Einstein, did not put the brain back in the skull. He put it in a jar with a preserving solution. And rather than returning the brain to the body, the rogue doctor keeps it for himself. After Dr. Harvey takes the brain, of course, the Princeton Hospital tries to get him to return it. He refuses, and he's eventually dismissed. Despite losing his job, Dr. Harvey is determined to hold on to the scientist's brain and pleads his unorthodox case to the Einstein family. He did go back to the family after the fact, and he did get permission to use the brain for scientific study. Dr. Harvey hoped to be able to unlock the secret of Einstein's genius by looking at his brain to try and figure out what it was about him that made him so incredibly intelligent. But the doctor faces a problem. Dr. Harvey was just a pathologist. He was not a neuropathologist, so he did not have any additional training in studying the brain. So the discredited doctor transports Einstein's brain to Philadelphia and works with a lab technician to begin a painstaking investigation. When Dr. Harvey brought the brain to the lab in Philadelphia, they first sectioned the brain into about 200 sections. And this is all so you can look at the brain slice under a slide and look at the actual very microscopic structures of the brain. Then, Dr. Harvey sends five sets of slides, including this box of 46, now archived at the Mütter Museum in Philadelphia, to researchers around the country for an in-depth analysis. So what do these tissue samples reveal about one of modern science's most brilliant minds? When Albert Einstein dies in 1955, an autopsy is performed on his body. But it doesn't quite go by the book. Without permission, pathologist Dr. Thomas Harvey removes Einstein's brain and sends tissue samples to researchers all across the country to study the secrets of this magnificent mind. So what does science reveal about Albert Einstein's unparalleled genius? In Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, after months of diligent study on Einstein's brain tissue, a neuropathologist named Dr. Lucy Rourke Adams reveals some intriguing findings. One of the most outstanding features is that he has the brain of a young man. According to Dr. Rourke Adams, Einstein's brain lacks significant amounts of lipofuscin, a plaque-like buildup that accumulates with the aging process. And without this cellular waste, some believe that Einstein's 76-year-old brain could have functioned like the mind of a far younger man. 
Other scientists claim that Einstein's neurons may have been more closely packed together than the average person's, allowing him to process mathematical information at lightning-quick speed. Though specialists may never be able to pinpoint exactly which features of Einstein's brain may have accounted for his extraordinary intellectual abilities, these theories provide an exciting glimpse into the anatomy of a genius. In 1996, 45 years after the autopsy, Thomas Harvey finally returns the remaining portions of Einstein's brain to the Princeton Hospital. And here, at the Mütter Museum, these tissue samples from the illuminating study of his mind are forever immortalized, a testament to the dogged pursuit of mankind to decode the origins of intellect. On the banks of Lake Ontario in Youngstown, New York, is one of the nation's oldest military bases, Old Fort Niagara. Here, rugged stone buildings and heavy artillery tell the story of how France, Great Britain, and the United States once fought to control the Great Lakes region. But among these imposing structures is one that played a role in a very different kind of struggle. It's a gray limestone building almost windowless. Uh, it's got a wood-shingled roof, uh, and it's over 250 years old. This is a powder magazine, normally used to store gunpowder and keep it dry. But executive director Robert Emerson knows this modest edifice once served a far more sinister purpose when it was used to imprison an ordinary citizen against his will. So who was held here, and why? The early 1800s. America is emerging as a world power and expanding its Western land holdings. But some believe that at the heart of this nascent democratic culture is an elite core, a hidden brotherhood that aims to control the rest of society. They are the Freemasons. Masons are secret about their organization. It's felt that being able to keep a secret is a sign of good character. By 1826, this mysterious cabal has seen its members occupy the nation's highest offices. Not only was George Washington a Freemason, but so was Benjamin Franklin. Despite the prestige of its associates, many are critical of such a powerful organization whose operations are shrouded by a veil of mystery. And one common citizen is about to strike a crippling blow to this seemingly infallible secret society. 1826, Batavia, New York. A 50-year-old bricklayer applies for membership in the local Masonic Lodge. His name is William Morgan. Everyone intent upon joining the Masons is investigated for their background, and it was discovered that, that Morgan had some unsavory qualities. Uh, he was a drunkard, uh, he's a gambler. With Morgan's reputation as a drinker and carouser established, his application to the Freemasons is denied. For Morgan, who had once been a member of a different Masonic Lodge, it's a staggering blow. First of all, there's the sting of the rejection itself. But secondly, he's counting on his involvement in the Masons to bring him work. His anger and embarrassment soon snowball into a desire for revenge against the Freemasons. And he begins work on a manuscript called Illustrations of Masonry by one of the fraternity. In it, he viciously savages his former brethren. 
Some of the critiques that he, he levels at the Freemasons are that they're too powerful, they're taking over society, and he compares Freemasonry to the devil. But after Morgan brags in bars around town about his plans to publish his manuscript, the Masons decide such a betrayal cannot go unpunished. They're quite angry. They have him arrested on petty charges, mostly for debt. On September 12th, while he is locked in the town jail, two men claiming to be friends come to bail him out. However, Morgan fears that these men aren't friends after all, but rather Masons who have come to exact their revenge. As Morgan is manhandled, he exclaims, Murder, murder! Helpless, Morgan is forced into a carriage that speeds away. It's the last time William Morgan is ever seen. And what happens next ignites a firestorm of controversy that threatens to topple one of the world's most powerful and mysterious organizations. Batavia, New York, 1826. After bricklayer William Morgan threatens to expose the secrets of the shadowy brotherhood known as the Freemasons, he is kidnapped and whisked away in a carriage, never to be seen or heard from again. So what happened to him? When Morgan fails to return to his family, authorities launch a full-scale investigation. When questioned, a small group of Masons admit to kidnapping Morgan and locking him in this powder magazine at Old Fort Niagara, a deactivated military base under the care of a groundskeeper, who's a Freemason himself. It's in this Spartan structure that the Masons claim Morgan was held captive for nearly a week, before sending him into exile to ensure their secrets are never revealed. The Masons say that they send Morgan to Canada, give him $500, let him set up a new life, essentially out of the country. But others suspect that he met a more gruesome fate. Most people believe that Morgan is murdered, that he's dropped into the Niagara River with a, a rock attached to his ankle. Amid such sinister theories, a maelstrom of anti-Masonic hysteria sweeps the nation. And in the wake of the so-called Morgan Affair, the Masons lose about half of their members. The anti-Masonic feeling balloons after this incident occurs. This is just like the match in the powder keg. Word of the vanishing even reaches New York's governor, who calls for a state grand jury to further investigate the case. Over the years, police arrest 57 suspects, most of them Freemasons. And 26 people are tried, but none on murder charges. In the end, only three people are ever convicted for William Morgan's kidnapping. No one was ever convicted for the murder of William Morgan. Murder could not be proven. There was no body. While William Morgan's true fate is still unknown, the powder magazine at Old Fort Niagara stands as an enduring reminder of this unsolved mystery when an ordinary man defied a secret society and was never seen again. From air-powered trains to alien encounters, 
presidential weapons to stolen brains. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum.